welcome to Subject to Talent, brought to you by Allegis Global Solutions. Similar to you, we're always trying to learn more. On this podcast, we speak to workforce and talent experts from around the world, covering market trends, technology, and our ever-evolving dynamic industry. Hi, I'm Bruce Morton, the host of Allegis Global Solutions' Subject to Talent podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, Dawn Tura. Dawn's president and CEO of the Sourcing Industry Group, the world's premier membership association representing Fortune 500 and Global 1000 companies. With a combined spend of 17 trillion, with a T, 17 trillion in sourcing and outsourcing. And what a great job they do of that. SIG's goal is to elevate the strategic impact of these organizations on their company's top and bottom lines. So, welcome, Dawn. Well, thank you, Bruce. I'm excited to be here with you today. Yeah. Same here. So as we kick things off, I'm hoping you can introduce not just yourself, but also SIG or Sourcing Industry Group, lovingly known as SIG, um, and the growth and evolution over the past 20 years. And just share your personal journey as well, if you would, of, uh, of the sourcing, within the sourcing industry as well, and how you got to this point. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So SIG is actually just celebrated its 30th year, but I joined in November of 2007. Um, I started participating in SIG back in the 90s, and I was a sourcing consultant. I had a, a firm called Denali Group. But prior to that, my career path actually was I, I'm a recovering CPA, and I have a master's in international taxation. And I was in private practice in Palo Alto working with high net worth individuals and the Silicon Valley startups back then. I was actually on a group that named it Silicon Valley and tried to recruit business to Silicon Valley. Wow. So in cool. really exciting times, I had, you know, I, I just had companies like Electronic Arts before they went public. I had the I had um, David Packard and Bill Hewlett as high net worth individuals and the HP Foundation and the Packard Foundation. So it was an exciting time to be in Palo Alto. Candeliza Rice was the, I think, the vice provost over at Stanford. I was president of the Palo Alto Chamber of Commerce, and she was on my board. So it was a really exciting time. And then fast forward, one of my clients was a consulting firm who had just gotten into sourcing. And they hired my firm to come in, and they said, we know we're driving value, but we can't prove where it is. So we went in, and I showed them how to create one of the very first activity-based cost models, which was the birth of total cost of ownership. And we were able to prove where they were driving value right down to the general ledger code on the financial statements. And I fell in love with sourcing. So I sold my CPA firm. I went to work for them. Um, It took about three years. I realized I make a really bad employee. And (laughs) so I launched my own consulting firm called Denali Group. And um, and then did that for 12 years. And through that, uh, one of my mentors said, you have to get involved with SIG. It's just the premier organization for anyone in, in outsourcing at the time. So I went to the first event and started introducing strategic sourcing. And ironically, back then, Bruce, the outsourcing people were the cool kids and the strategic sourcing were the small potatoes. So they would look at us and say, you know, my agreements are worth billions of dollars and you're talking about pencils and pens, which was not true. And so I started speaking there and slowly but surely, you know, during my tenure as a consultant, we started to bring the outsourcing and the sourcing sides together to say all they are are different size agreements. But at the end of the day, the same principles and practices of strategic sourcing apply. And so um, it was very successful for my firm at the time. 
And then Barry Wiegler, who was original founder, and I got to be good friends. And one day I said to him, ironically, I said, Barry, I want to grow up and be you. And he said, what does that mean? I said, you get to talk about sourcing. You get to talk to brilliant people day in and day out. And it sounds really cool. And I was going through a sort of midlife crisis. I had four young children at home traveling every week. And ironically, five years later, he called me up and said, hey, do you want to grow up and be me? And so I really believe if you put it out there in the universe, sometimes the world yeah. hears you. So I thought, wow, what an opportunity. So I uh, sold my part of the consulting firm and joined SIG and took, took it over November 1st, which if you recall, was just shortly before the markets crashed. And so yeah. in February of 2008, we had the pleasure of meeting the new recession I drove down membership by about 40%. Thought, oh my God, what did I do? But um, I was lucky. I was married, so I had an income at that time. So I was able to not take a salary and just plow every bit of money that, I, that the company was making back into it. And I knew that the recession was going to end. And I knew if we just kept evolving and making ourselves better and better, that they would come once the recession was over. And so they did. And so now, 15 years later... It's the time of my life, and I still every day wake up and pinch myself, like, how did I get here? This is so cool. Well, that's a great story, and thank you so much for sharing. It's, a, it's incredible how many times you hear that successful companies being built during a recession. I don't think anybody would do it by choice, <laughs> but hey, all's well that ends well. Um, so that's great. So I think we can definitely agree that right now it's definitely an interesting time, a very challenging time to be in the sourcing world. Um, it's something like those – do people understand if you, unless you were in sourcing, do people understand the concept of supply chain? But everything we've been through, whether it's you know your local hairdresser or the local grocery store, supply chain is on everybody's lips, um, and how they can get this or that. So, to set the context for today's conversation, can you br briefly explain as you think about the sourcing industry at large? What's happening in the supply chain right now? Well, a massive disruption. And, you know, it, it, we had taken it too far in the opposite direction, supply chain. You know, I was adamant that we wanted to go for just-in-time delivery, zero inventory levels, cost to capital historically has been quite high. So we would always preach for just-in-time, cross-docking, not even receiving material. And as a result, you know, never had foreseen a pandemic. And so years later... Having no inventory is actually a bad thing. And I do foresee that, you know, that we're going to have to build up some inventory to be, to be able to protect against disruption. But the disruption, you know, became evident during the pandemic. I think it was fast forward because of the pandemic. But the truth be held, you know, the baby boomers are still retiring out of the system. The pandemic made a lot of people rethink and say, I just don't want to go back to work in a risky environment. So we lose the truckers, the warehousemen, the, the people on the docks. And so there is going to be a workforce shortage and it's not going to get better. And so it's really time for people to start thinking about how to build the resiliency. And so the pandemic brought it to light. It, um, it's funny. You're right. Everybody now knows about supply chain. Everyone knows that word. I'm going to be asked by my neighbors, like, why can't I get my fencing? It's like, I don't know <laughs> what I study. <laughs> That's your fault. <laughs> but I mean, I face it myself. You know, I've got things that are missing in my new house that I can't get, you know, fixed. So I get it. It's on everyone's tongue. On the other hand, it's also made a lot of sourcing people the superheroes. And, right. you know, those who were able to get through the pandemic and do well for their companies. But I'd say that, you know, the biggest issue we're facing is there's going to be a permanent workforce shortage, which is going to drive digital. And it's really, you know, with the whole 
gig economy. In fact, you brought it to us years before when you said, you know, we're going to be at 50 percent gig. It's like, there's no way that number is outrageous. <laughs> and now all of our members are facing the fact it is a gig economy. And how do you do more with less? And how do you have these you know flexible workforces? And so, yeah, so it's uh, it's always going to be disrupted. And I think the supply chain is not going to get better until, you know, I think a lot of people are going to have to bring sources of supply closer to home. You know, I get a lot of people to say, well, you know, shame on us. You know, we moved our auto manufacturing to Asia. And that's not really true. You know, we moved a lot of auto, we created a lot of jobs in Asia for auto manufacturing, but that wasn't just for low cost labor. That was because we created a middle class in China who now wanted these vehicles and we brought right. them closer to the source. We still manufacture vehicles in North America. Unfortunately, it's the computer chip issue that we're facing in a lot of the supply chain disruption today. But a lot of people just don't get the fact that we did move a lot of manufacturing closer to where the consumers are. Yeah, it was headlines again just this morning about the semiconductor shortage. We talk, headline now is Biden, what are you doing about it? So I'm like, so he's insourcing now, apparently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you touched on there the shortage, um, and obviously that's where our worlds collide in a way. Um, you know, that, that shortage of talent and the reality that we are living in a new world now. So what are you seeing when you speak to, because you know, you, you're great conversations I know with CPOs of some of the world's best companies at large out there. So what sort of conversations are they getting into in terms of how they can respond to this decline in the workforce? You know, it was interesting. We had a really large debate just a couple hours ago on our CPO executive roundtable. And um, one of the folks was shocked. You know, there's no talent shortage. You know, there's plenty of talent. That shouldn't be the reason you don't go digital. And the truth is we have a lot of people still in procurement, but we don't have a lot of people with the right mindset and the training to be digital talent. And those are the warriors that we need, the people that can that have system thinking, that can do you know, design thinking, the people that can go into projects and see holistically how the systems all need to be integrated. That's a really different talent than the normal procurement person needed um, in the past. So while there are a lot of bodies that still are actively involved in procurement, we need more digital talent, the people that understand it and the people that you know, the younger generation don't have patience and they want speed. They want efficiency. They want, you know, smart people don't want to do dumb work. And so the younger generation is pushing for digitalization. The older generation is saying, well, just do your job. And so it's really going to be when we have enough baby boomers to try it out of the system and we have younger leaders who understand that the only way to motivate and retain top talent is going to be, you know, making sure that you're as digitalized as possible that we're really going to be able to start retain, attracting and retaining good talent. So we're at that point right now of inflection where we have to ask some of the baby boomers to step away. Right. And do you, um, as a baby boomer myself, I'm looking forward to that at some point, but um, <laughs> do, you, do you see that because of those conversations that um, the sourcing function itself is either trying to create that more strategic space for it or being invited into those conversations to have those conversations, you know, how, what are the different ways we can get work done as opposed to just throwing bodies at it? Yeah. You know, so one of our executives said, you know, we have proven our value almost too much. And if without going digital or democratization of the, of the sourcing activity, we can't handle it. You know, now that we showed our value, there's so much demand on us and we can't keep up. So it's going to drive us to go to digitalization. 
and the whole democratization of the of the sourcing activity. We have to be able to push it out to the end user. And I think that's a really important concept. At the same time, though, and I think this is important, is that this one company said, we have to rethink third-party risk because we spend $18 million a year as a procurement organization managing risk. And they came up with a brilliant concept where they're going to take their riskiest suppliers and assess a fee because they said, if we had $18 million more, think of what we could buy in technology, the people we could bring in, the talent. But we spend $18 million that we'd never spent in the past on third-party risk. So we're going to start passing that on to our riskier suppliers, the ones that we still need, but bring more risk. And I think that's an interesting concept too. So, you know, they said, you know, the problem is we proved our value. The problem is we can't serve all of these clients. And so now how do we push it out so that everybody can be doing purchasing, but we're putting the parameters around it. And that takes tools and technology and, and digital natives. Right. And, and, and part it's an interesting risk levy. I was thinking in my head, but the, as, as you were mentioning there, you can't possibly do all the procurement for every person. So do you think that's expedited the growth of the technology platforms out there that can be more consumer-like? So if you're a buy, you know, if you're a high manager inside an organization, you're not in procurement, but you want to buy something, are you seeing evidence of procurement making that easier for that? Give them more of a consumer-like experience? Yeah. And so one of the struggles that we talked about today, in fact, was the fact that they invested so heavily back in the you know, early 2000s in ERP systems. And the things that were supposed to, you know, we're not going to customize, it's going to be out of the box, became highly customized, you know, 10 and $20 million implementations. And that's still biting a lot of them. You know, when they go to ask and say, we need to be more agile, we need more technology. And they they remember the ERP rollout days. And so really the case now is that the tools have changed so dramatically in the last few years. I mean, the onset of new participants and the investment community putting money into these startups is huge in the last few years. And so now it's really for us to you know, be able to get away from the ERP baggage that we carry and the expense that it costs the company and talk about all these agile, agile, agile tools that are out there today. And those are the ones that people need and want. And that's the only way we're going to be able to push out the procurement, you know, the actual procurement out to the end individuals and have parameters around it and manage the third party risk. So there's no reason people should be able to click in and get what they need as long as we've set the all the rules at the top level. Right. So then that sourcing function becomes more of the, as you say, the, the gatekeeper putting the parameters around it doing that vetting, but once they're in the tent, yeah. then procurement process should be a lot smoother. Yeah. And, you know, you know, back when I first met you, Bruce, you know, services was one of those things that we never touched back then because no one knew, you know, we had no, we had no visibility on service. When I got into sourcing, it was materials, commodities, and we start, start talking about services and it was like, well, they're out there. We could identify a consulting agreement. We could identify you know, maybe, you know, a, a staff augmentation firm. But one of the first times when I met you and, and talked about getting your handle around all of the spend for all of the services, that was a mind boggling concept. That was a six month consulting gig one time for us. Six months, yeah. you know, when, when the CEO yeah. asked the CPO, how many people does it take to run my company? And he said 14,000. And he came to the CPO and said, can you prove it? And it was 28,000. But, but it took us six months to, to yeah. tell them that. Go and find them. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, you know, what you've been able to do has put so much more visibility on the services side. And thank God, because that is there's so much risk in the services specter. You know, we never thought about services of having third party risk and it's huge. So, yeah. yeah, so that's a huge change. Yeah, that's just a nice segue into what I was just thinking about as well is that, you know, we've been, you and I personally and, and many others have been discussing that when are procurement and HR finally going to come together? You know, who, you know, put up 100 people in the room, 50 procurement, 50 HR and said, who owns the non-employee workforce and then let the fun begin? It's a great volleyball um, game. You know, we've, yeah, we've seen a great shift in that. Um, and funny enough, just uh, just yesterday I was looking at, the organizations that are coming to our annual customer council event. Now, if you look at the, on the contingent side of the business, the staff org of the services, five years ago, that would have been 80, 90% procurement. Now we're 50, 50. So HR having a more of a holistic view um, and you know ownership in inverted commas, but some form of ownership and visibility of the entire workforce. Um, and I think it's been, I don't think we're done yet. I think they're still coming together to happen. But are you, in your conversations, do you get that feeling that procurement are understanding how this needs to be more of a harmonized approach? Yeah. And, it, you know, HR traditionally, back when I started, only wanted to focus on full-time employees. You yeah. know, those are the ones that they nurtured and cared for and wanted to know about the onboarding experience, the life cycle experience, the offboarding experience. They never thought about the fact that they also, you know, could eventually nurture and help retain the the non-employee base. And I think that realization is, you know, as it's starting to grow and is hitting 50% in a lot of companies, they realize that those people are just as important as full-time employees. And we can't be successful without both the full-time and the non-employee base both being nurtured. Because retention of, of staff of, of non-employee base is just as important because they can pick up and go in an instant. So, yep. you know, I think that helped HR understand that they really need to be about all the people. And by understanding that we had the tools and the visibility through the procurement organization, I think we've come to respect each other much more than we did 10 years ago and understand that we're both going for the same cause, that which is, you know, yep. getting the work done and, and being efficient and time to market and all that. So I think it's taken... The realization that that we had to come together and it just took time yeah yeah it's great to see um so i want to shift gears slightly and you touched on third-party risk earlier but i know it's something that you're truly passionate about so how do you see how has that changed over the years when cpos talk about risk mitigation what are the lens they tend to look through now what are some of the things that you know you're looking for when you talk about risk mitigation so we, so historically, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if I was going to source somebody to work on facilities, you know, I, a computer wasn't involved and mm -hmm. a background check, you know, really didn't matter that much. You know, we had, you know, groups that hired ex-cons to come in and do cleaning and things like that at night. And it was fine. There have been so many changes, both in the diversity, equity, inclusion, where we want diverse workforces to workforce safety has changed to the fact that now we have to look at, at any services group as having computers as part of their job. Right. And my HVAC, you know, whoever thought that air conditioning and, you know, heating and cooling had to VPN into the system. 
you know, that was something that we never did a cyber check, never talked about computer access, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And that's what happened to Target was an HVAC supplier. You know, I have one that, that I love to just scare people with, which is we have a set of casinos um, headquartered out of Las Vegas operating worldwide, and they have a huge fish tank. And in the fish tank, they had a fish um, aquarium vendor, you know, maintenance vendor that they hired, right. and they dropped a thermometer in the fish tank to monitor the temperature of the water. It has to be on the internet. Somebody hacked in through the thermometer enables us to siphon off millions of dollars. Being a casino, the bells went off really quickly, but they still lost millions of dollars. So something as innocent as someone who's going to care for our aquarium has an internet connected device. And so there's a cyber risk, a third party risk to that, that this was a small contract. You know, for the size of the tank, I mean, it was probably 50000 a year. It, you don't pay attention to that size contract, and yet that cost them millions of dollars per year. And it wasn't the fish vendor's fault. They had an internet-connected device. It yeah. wasn't necessarily procurement's fault because they never thought about it, but the risk came back and said, procurement, you didn't do your due diligence. So that's, you know, just the most basic way you look at it. So third-party risk through services is everywhere. Do we allow them to VPN? And I don't know how it hit you, but like when we first sent all the workforce home in the pandemic, a lot of people said, we can't let contractors work from home. Yeah. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, you didn't know what your employees were doing either. Well, I can't allow them access. <laughs> they're not in the right. office, right. you know? Yeah. And so you think about all the people that are involved in the services side that introduce so much risk into the organization. And so procurement by itself could literally take down the organization, the company or wreck their reputation. And so that is why it is such a prevalent need for us is to identify risk. And it's not to be a worry ward, it's to be aware. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I can just imagine, Pete, those folks that listen to this right now glanced at their thermometer on the wall as <laughs> you told that story. <laughs> um, but that's a great, that's a great illustration. Um, well, yeah, thank you for that. So something else that I love hearing you talk about is uh, I know you're a big advocate for improving sustainability in the global supply chain. And just talk more about how SIG, your organization, are helping companies out there meet their ESG goals. Yeah. So it's it's way beyond ESG, to be honest with you. You know, we took a commitment when we first went to the UN uh, to support the 17 SDGs, development goals. And so it's everything from human trafficking in the supply chain to feeding the people of the world. And there are so many things that we can do. You know, Bruce, when you think about it and and there's a good side and a bad side, and especially if you're political. By outsourcing to China, we created a middle class that didn't exist. We raised millions of people out of poverty and created a middle class. We lost the manufacturing abilities quite a bit. On the other hand, these people, when they hit middle class, wanted Western goods. So it drove more sales to other countries. We lifted India you know, by outsourcing application development and computer services and all kinds of things, we raised millions of people out of poverty. So sourcing can have such an impact. And the good thing is, once again, they have it, they then strive to be more westernized and they want Western goods. We sell more. It also left us very exposed in a pandemic, you know, not having everyone close, not being able to touch and feel and talk to people. But we've done a lot of good. And so, you know, you think about it in Africa, which is one of the places that we're moving to right now, the, you know, folks that are normally starving are now able to take the little bit of education they have or a lot of education they have and provide for their families and raise them out of poverty. 
that's all part of the 17 SDGs. And so, right. you know, sourcing, you know, we talked about, you know, in warring factions, in if you have political unrest and you have no jobs and inflation sky high, you'll have doctors and scientists in the streets fighting because there's nothing else for them to do. What they'd rather do is have a job. They'd much rather be in their home and working and getting money and taking care of their family. So you can lower tensions around the world by outsourcing to certain factions around the world. And what people don't realize is that like Mexico puts out more engineers annually than the United States, right. way more, yeah. you know? So it's, it's just having that realization that there are really smart people. I was down in Nicaragua. I can pay an engineer $6,000 a year and get a, an educated engineer, and then he will have a good lifestyle. So, you know, we just have to realize that a lot of good has come out of this and we can help lift people out of poverty, help end hunger, all kinds of things by how we source and what we do. So that's where my passion lies. We literally can change the world through procurement. Yeah, that's great. Um, and well said. And I think it's, I've loved watching the evolution of India, you know, because I've been in the stamping industry for 40 plus years. That was, was all about labor arbitrage. Now it's about skill set. So that's where the smart people are that know the stuff. I mean, that's why you send certain types of work to Israel, send other types of work to Egypt. And I think the, you know, at some point, you know, if we can break down those barriers that are now countries, it's more around sort of the tribalism of skill set and knowledge. You know, if you think designers, everybody thinks IKEA, they think Scandinavia, right? So what are, what are those other areas that we group together in the world? Anyway, you and I could talk for hours about that, <laughs> and I'm sure we will next time we meet over a glass of wine. Um, but we do like to, uh, as we come to come into the end here, we do like to ask all of our guests the crystal ball question. So I apologize in advance, but here we go. Have you had a crystal ball um, a few years out? What do you think this sourcing industry will look like? And if, what, what would the difference between now and then? So if I went out to, so we're 2022, if I went out to, let's say, 2030, 2040, I think we are going to have end-to-end -end visibility of 100% of our supply chain. So very much like farm to table, it's going to be farm to table to consumer on every aspect of supply chain. I think we're going to have 100% visibility. We're going to know where our cotton was grown that was then spun into, uh, you know, spun into cloth that went in to be manufactured. I think we're going to have complete and total visibility. I think we're going to understand how much carbon and other emissions have come out of every single good that we buy. I think we're going to be all actively focused on credits and ways to offset our carbon footprint. I think we're going to have so much more visibility into all of that on a worldwide basis. And so that's my first one. And I think the other part is that it's going to be with the use of AI, I think most of procurement will be fully automated. And the smart procurement person is going to be helping guide the AI and making sure it's getting unbiased feeds. I think, um, I think we're going to have, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think we're even going to increase the number of non-employees that work for a company and that the more and more people are going to go for the gig economy in the future than even today. And we're going to get by the smaller workforce because we have to. That's great. Wow. That's an exciting world. And thank you for giving us that vision. Um, been great pleasure, of course, speaking to you, John. Thank you again. And so where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you and SIG? Very easy. SIG.org. SIG.org. There you go. Six letters, there one little period, and you're in. 
and we'd love to have more people part of the SIG tribe. Yeah, and I highly, highly recommend it. We've been a great partnership over the years. I look forward to many, many more. Thanks again, Dawn. It's been great. Thank you. To learn more about AGS, please check us out at AllegisGlobalSolutions.com. You can also send questions for me or our guests. Just tweet us here at Allegis Global with the hashtag subject to talent or email us at subject to talent at leadersglobalsolutions.com. And if you enjoyed our podcast today, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>